This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for December 24th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crusty. Each week, all year long, we share the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. And it's our last podcast of the year. And we have fun stuff that's also from Science and the Sister Journals. First online news editor, David Grimm, brings the top online stories of the year, from headless slugs to Dyson spheres. Then researcher Tibor Harkany talks with me about marijuana research. Pot has been legalized in many places, and many people are taking cannabinoids. What do we know about the mechanisms of these molecules inside of people? Tibor calls for more research into their helpful and harmful potential. Finally, we have the very last installment of our series of books on race and science. Books host Angela Saini talks with physician and science fiction author Todd A. Thompson about his book, Rosewater. This is the last episode of 2021, and we're lucky to have online news editor David Grimm here. He's got the top online stories of the year. Dave, can you remind us how these are different from the breakthrough of the year and the runners-up that we did last week? Yeah, we've got a lot of stuff going on at the end of the year. This is one of my favorites, though, and I guess I'm a little bit biased, but this is sort of a roundup of our favorite stories. So these are stories that either were very popular, so these stories got a lot of of eyeballs on them in 2021, mixed in with just some of our staff favorites, stories that we really enjoyed reading as editors and readers and lovers of science. So there's there's not any COVID stuff here. It's kind of just a mix of fun intriguing, kind of uh, compelling stories. It was hard for me not to go with all animal stories for this, so we're not doing all animal stories. Yes. (laughs) Let's start with animals. Let's talk about wombats. I had to choose one of these actually as an image for the podcast this week because they are so cute. And they're also very (laughs) odd animals. Yes. What questions are researchers asking these days about wombats? Funny you should ask, Sarah. (laughs) One of the big questions they're asking is, why do they poop cubes? Sarah, did you know that wombats pooped cubes? No, I did not. This was all new to me until of this news story. Yeah. Did you know that they're the only animal that poops cubes? That doesn't surprise me because I would have guessed that it was zero animals. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so wombats poop these six-sided turds. And there's a lovely picture of one on the website if you want to check it out. There's a video too. <laughs> There's a video. And in fact, these guys actually poop nearly a hundred of them every day. But 
without getting too graphic, their buttholes, like the rest of our buttholes, are, are round. And so how is a square cube coming out of a round butt? And that's been a mystery to science, believe it or not. So I'm assuming that they're not sculpting them after they come out? They are not. What are they actually doing? <laughs> they're being formed in situ or in intestinu. I don't know what the right word is there, but actually that's what this new study found. They actually used a rombat that had died after being hit by a car, took a hard look at his or her intestines. And what they found was there were some interesting things going on with their guts. They have these interesting portions where some... Regions are sort of stiff like a rubber band. Other regions are a lot more flexible. And this variety of sort of stiffness is what scientists think enables them to create this cube-shaped poop. I'm really having trouble visualizing this, but basically there's something about the changes from like very tense intestine to very loose intestine that's getting you a cube. Right. The intestines are, are sort of arranged in such a way they actually sort of sculpt and mold this poop as it's sort of making its way through the digestive system. So let's say we now know how this amazing feat is accomplished. We have the how, but what about the why? Why might wombats have evolved cubic poops? That is the other mystery, and that one remains unsolved. There's the longstanding theory that they use their poops to mark their territory, and because they like to climb up on rocks and logs, you can imagine if you're pooping a normal poop on these types of surfaces, they're going to roll off. And that's not really great for marking your territory if the poop's not there anymore. But the square poop seems to stay in place. So that's still in the hypothesis stage, but maybe a mystery to be solved in the future. What can't evolution do? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Dave, let's talk about not cubes, but spheres, Dyson spheres. This is a hypothetical kind of sci-fi thing at this point. A Dyson sphere is a gigantic structure that surrounds a star and harvests the energy for when you can't get enough from your planet. You know, you go over there to the star, get some straight for the source. But the one we're going to talk about today goes around a black hole. Why try for that instead? For the Star Trek nerds out there, and I consider myself one of them, there is a Ooh, yes. Next Generation episode. Where this is the one where Scotty actually comes back, and uh, he's been living, I believe, on the outskirts of a Dyson sphere, which is, as you say, Sarah, is this large, solid structure that surrounds a star to harvest its energy. The Star Trek one is solid, and that is not what people think should happen. That's not what we're talking about here. Because, and apparently that's physically impossible because the gravity of the star would destroy the sphere. But um, And what we're talking about here is actually not a solid sphere. It's actually a sphere right. kind of made up maybe of satellites or pieces that are not stuck together. And that sort of solves the, the gravity problem. But here we're talking about a sphere or a megastructure around a black hole. And black holes actually emit lots of different energy. People think of black holes as just sort of sucking up right. everything in their wake. But actually, they create energy in a number of different ways. They create energy from radiation that's emitted from the accumulation of gas that's around the hole, the spinning accretion disk, creates energy. The relativistic jets of matter create energy. And there's also something called Hawking radiation, which is a theoretical way that black holes can lose mass and they release energy in the process. So if you had a way to trap all this sort of waste energy, the idea is that you could actually harness a ton of energy, potentially even as much energy as if you had a Dyson sphere around 100,000 or maybe even a million stars. Okay. So one of the points that I thought was really interesting about this was we 
care about Dyson Spheres, not because we're going to build anyone anytime soon, but you can think about it as maybe a signature for an alien civilization. A lot of this is very speculative and theoretical. The practical application is if there was such a civilization, and this would obviously be a very, very advanced civilization out there that was doing this, we would actually theoretically be able to detect it because of the energy given off by this whole process would be something we could even detect with telescopes we have today. So it wouldn't even take a futuristic telescope to be able to find something like this. We actually know what to look for and we could theoretically find it with telescopes we have uh, right now. The signature would be different if it was using a black hole rather than a star. Yes, that's the idea. And so we could actually even figure out what kind of, you know, somewhat what kind of structure it was. So we should now be looking for both types of signatures for Dyson spheres around stars and Dyson spheres around black holes. Only if you want to find an advanced alien civilization, Sarah. I do. Okay, me too. (laughs) Me too. They need to help us. All right. So one more. We should talk about another animal story. Uh, This is about sea slugs that lose their heads and live on. What? What? This is definitely our craziest video of the year, maybe our most disturbing video of the year. And obviously you can find it on the website. But yes, this is a sea slug head crawling around its body, basically circling its body. Without a body. Oh my goodness. Circling its body. Circling its body. Yeah. It doesn't have a body. It's recently detached from its body and the head is just kind of wiggling around and miraculously surviving and not just surviving for a couple of days, but actually surviving for up to a month without actually being able to ingest any food or water. It somehow survives and actually is able to, over a few weeks, regrow its entire body. You don't even know where to start, do you, Sarah? Yeah, no, I know exactly. How is the head getting detached? The creature, the sea slug, is actually detaching its head itself. This is not a case where researchers cut off the head and saw what would happen. They actually had a bunch of sea slugs in these tanks. And over the course of several weeks, they noticed a lot of them detaching their heads. Like a lizard dropping its tail, but dropping a head instead? Exactly. Kind of the other way around. Wow. And they regrow their bodies? They regrow their bodies. It does take a few weeks, but they're actually able to fully regrow their bodies. And significantly, the bodies don't regrow heads. And so this is not a way for sea slugs to clone themselves or reproduce. So if they drop a body, the head grows a body, but the separate body doesn't also grow a head. So you don't get two. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. That makes sense, I guess. They do have a brain, right? There's a little brain inside that slug head. I'll take your word for that. I did not. Know <laughs> that, but... I did Google that. There is a big grouping of neurons in there, so okay. they have some some stuff happening on there. But so they've lost their head, but they haven't lost their brain. Okay, so well, I know why lizards drop their tails. It's often in response to a predator. I've actually picked up a skink before, and it dropped its tail, and it was so wiggly in the grass, very much distracting (laughs) me from the skink. So yeah, this is a way of uh, certain kinds of lizards to evade predators. Is that what the slug is doing here? No, researchers don't think that's what's happening here. And primarily because it's such a slow process. It takes a while. I think it takes hours. To detach the head? To detach the head. So there's no way if a predator was going after you, that wouldn't be a viable way of escaping. And the head doesn't move very fast anyway. So like, even if the head detached quickly, the head would still kind of be around. But they'd be like, eat my body. It's so much more food. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. 
But re research actually think, you know, all, all the slugs that the researchers observed cutting off their own heads were infected with small crustaceans known as copepods. And so they think it's a way maybe the body's sort of overrun with these parasites. It's a way for the head to sort of get away and form a new body that it won't be infected. Wow. So that's the that's the going hypothesis right now. Really interesting. And so we can use this in so many ways. <laughs> that I cannot <laughs> promise. What's interesting about this is we've seen this in, in sort of less complex creatures being able to do this, but this is the most complex creature we've been able to see, see it in. We don't expect this to be applicable to humans anytime soon, but it, this story did also result in one of my favorite quotes of the year, which is um, one of the outside experts said, it underscores the fact that still in the 21st century, we truly do not know what is possible in biology. And I love that because that's what's so great about science. Even when we think we figured everything out, there's still things that surprise us every day and even surprise scientists every day. So I think that's a, another really cool thing about this study. Definitely. All right, Dave, that was a super fun, quick tour of the top online stories, but there are quite a few more. Do you want to mention some and then we'll let people know where to go to find the rest? Yeah, Sarah, we've got stories about potty trading cows entering people's dreams, a artificial intelligence that wrote a very kinky and somewhat disturbing play, <laughs> and our number one story of the year, which is also our most popular non-COVID story of the year. So be sure to check out the site to see all of the rest of the stories. Thanks, Dave. That's science.org these days. David Grimm is an online news editor. You can find a link to the top stories article and our breakthrough coverage at science.org slash podcast. Just a reminder, we are off next week and then back on the air for the January 7th episode. Don't touch that dial. Researcher Tibor Harkini is up next with what we know and don't know about the effects of cannabinoids on the body. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash Nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. These days, it seems like there's CBD in all kinds of things. Pet food, skin oil. CBD is a component of cannabis sativa, which is also known as marijuana. It's not psychotropic. It doesn't get you high. The part of cannabis sativa that does is THC. How are these molecules different from each other? What are they doing in the body? What do other marijuana-derived molecules do? Tibor Harkini is a professor of molecular neuroscience in the Center for Brain Research at the Medical University of Vienna. He wrote an insight piece for science on the biological basis of cannabinoid medicines. Hi, Tibor. Hello. Regulations on both the psychotropic and the non-psychotropic molecules have loosened up and people are getting more and more exposed to it. So it's, it's a good time to figure out what exactly they're good for and, and how we can use them. This field was exponentially growing during the past 20, 25 years as a research field. But obviously, with the change in legislation, change in societal views on cannabis and cannabinoid derivatives, this became a topical issue, not only for researchers themselves, but also for the broader public. Right. 
We know a bit about the biology of these two components that we're talking about, THC and CBD. Can you walk us through some of these cellular interactions that we know about with these two molecules? First, let's take THC. What do we know about how it interacts with cells in the body? So I think there are substantial differences between how these two molecules act. So THC is considered one of the key components of the plant, which directly interact with cannabinoid receptors. Now, cannabinoid receptors are in our body not because we need to have high from THC, but because they are members or molecular constituents of the endocannabinoid system. And this is a very broad regulatory system, which essentially is in most of our organs. So when THC acts, then it directly induces the activation of these receptors. And depending on the cell type, depending on the context, they will induce signaling cascades, second messenger signaling, which certainly will affect the cell state, how developing cells divide, how adult cells will function, and most importantly, the brain, how brain cells will communicate to each other. How is the other commonly known substance, CBD, different? So CBD most likely affects a number of other receptors, receptors other than the type 1 cannabinoid receptor, which is the preferential target for THC. And it has also potential as an antioxidant as well as a neuroprotective compound. So it has many other targets, many other cellular targets, which differentiate it from THC. While there are purified versions of these substances available, if someone uses the whole plant, then they're going to have both of these molecules acting at the same time. Yes. So in the plant, there is a lot more than THC and CBD. Depending on what type of plant is cultivated, the ratio of THC and CBD can vary quite dramatically. But we think there is 80 to 100 different other potentially bioactive substances still in the plant. But we don't know that other things aren't even more reactive or doing more things. So this is, I think, the, so to speak, the treasure trove of this plant. Very minute amount will not have high biological contributions when you look at the global content of the plant. But once they are purified, I would certainly not exclude the probability that individual compounds are even more powerful than THC or CBD themselves. Mm -hmm. They just might be harder to get out. Exactly. And they are in much lesser quantities in the plant. Cannabinoids interact with our endocannabinoid system, which means we have receptors and molecules system-wide doing things in the body. And it just happens that these molecules from the marijuana plant interact with it. What happens when it's disrupted by these plant-derived cannabinoids? You know, can we say, oh, it's not always a good thing to interrupt the endocannabinoid system? So I think you can very easily contextualize this question. So when somebody takes recreationally cannabis, then obviously the additional compounds which are smoked or which are taken will add up above and beyond the existing endocannabinoid levels in our body. This is why we experience the high. This is why we experience amnesia. This is why we experience other, so to speak, side effects or other very strong psychotropic effects. For instance, if the cannabis plant or cannabis has itself high amounts of THC, when these are medically used, they either replenish lost concentration of endogenous cannabinoids, so they normalize the system, or they are brought in into context when there is more 
endocannabinoids required then actually exist in our body to achieve medical potency and medical activity. So I think the real difference is that in one case, we are just adding on recreationally on a normal system, whereas in a medical situation, we have a damaged underlying system, whichever organ we are talking about, we are trying to normalize the endocannabinoid system to a level that it can function as if under native conditions. And I think this is really where a balance between endogenous cannabinoids and exogenous plant-derived cannabinoids really starts to be significant. With that mechanism in mind, what are some places where people should be looking, should be doing research to better understand how these molecules might help people? Firstly, in psychiatric diseases, particularly aging-associated diseases, where there is a decline not only of the endocannabinoid system, but for instance, neuronal communication in general. So anywhere where we can promote and modify to the benefit of the individual communication amongst brain cells could be a niche for these compounds. Then secondly is epilepsy, where these compounds reduce neuronal activity, reduce the excess communication between neurons, and thereby normalize brain activity. And in other words, they will reduce the number of seizures And thirdly, I think it's also important to identify the inflammatory diseases, both neuroinflammation, but of course, inflammatory diseases from arthritis to bowel disease. One thing that stuck out to me was that there is a big difference in how these compounds could act in babies or kids versus adults. We should start perhaps from the point that once cannabinoids are in the body, their half-life is relatively long. This long half-life can be looked at two ways. One is that in the adult brain, once they engaged their receptors and once they engaged the neural circuitries, they slowly will decay and uh, there will be a normalization of brain function or in other organs, the normalization of organ function in adults. Therefore, we think, and I think this is the general understanding, the effects will wean off and uh, there will be no major long-term imprint, except, of course, heavy and repeated use, which would be an extreme, relatively extreme situation. We think that once cannabinoids are used in developmental contexts, they can really have long-term and often harmful effects on, say, developing children, fetuses, or even adolescents. Because, as you know, well, no, brain development is up to late adolescence, early adulthood, for instance, so in the first 25 years of life, we can say that once these compounds hit their targets, then over hours or days, whilst they linger around and while they're available, they can disrupt developmental processes which are unidirectional, meaning that once there is a failure, our developing bodies cannot go back and cannot reset and cannot proofread these lost processes, and therefore the organ or the individual will likely grow with these deficits. And therefore, it will be difficult, if at all possible, to correct these. So part of this is because the endocannabinoid system, the one that's in our bodies, it actually has some role in guiding development. So if you tweak it very early with external sources, you can mess up that process. Indeed, you are absolutely correct. So the endocannabinoid system is involved 
in defining a sales life and a, so to speak, a sales life expectancy. So particularly how stem cells divide, how these progenies will differentiate and how they will, for instance, in the brain start communicating with each other. This is sounding very serious, but we're not seeing this at the population level. We're not seeing, you know, epidemiologically widespread evidence of kids being harmed because they're exposed to cannabis. I would challenge you on this one because back in the mid-1990s, there were studies already in the U.S. actually, which showed that uh, children who were prenatally exposed, so during pregnancy exposed to cannabis, they had persistent deficits in academic performance. They usually left school early. They are much more prone to take drugs, which are kind of heavy drugs, becoming heavy drug users. One point is, which I think is always the constant debate, is how potent are these defects. If you have a fetal alcohol syndrome, right. it is devastating for the child, right? When you have cannabis exposure, then that is nothing comparable to what you would see, say, with fetal alcohol syndrome. So most people, unless they go through psychological testing and so on and so forth, could say like, yes, my children still reach university and still perform well enough. But I think when you look at detailed studies, you know, there is more and more recognition that actually these kids are affected. This is one set. The other is that, that there is a lot of evidence that the earlier adolescents start smoking cannabis, the more severe effects and long-term effects they will experience. So, for instance, the number of hospitalizations because of uh, psychosis will dramatically increase if you compare a 12-year-old kid with a 16-year-old child. So I think that this is a growing recognition, so to speak, but obviously we are genetically different from each other, right? Yeah, especially with the psychology, with neurobiology, it's very hard to take environment and even the genes that are our environment out of the equation and know. Exactly. So I think, I think this is exactly why you see much more pronounced experimental data than population data. Because obviously, when you have mice on a shared genetic background, then you can standardize everything. Whereas hundreds or thousands of children on different backgrounds or different experiences on different diets, on different challenges, they are definitely will give you a, a picture which is much more shaded or graded than experimental research. Yeah, that makes sense. As regulations have changed, as marijuana has become easier to study, do you feel like the stigma against studying this kind of thing has lessened? I think it's not the stigma that has changed. I think it's the, it's the relative level of importance and the relative level of considering as mainstream research increased. But I think also that the expectations have changed because this field became so politicized that the extremes of cannabis is the wonder drug or cannabis is the destroyer of life yep. kind of prevail. And it's very, very difficult to bridge these two extremes and also very difficult or increasingly difficult to instigate an objective scientific debate on how cannabis and cannabinoids should be looked at. I think the challenge is that 
with the legalization, the presumption is that this is harmless and that uh, the situation is all under control and very much verified makes it more difficult to argue for future studies being needed. So in terms of how the field is looked at, had been transformed by the societal discussion around cannabinoids. Wow, really interesting. Thanks, Tibor. Thank you very much. Tibor Harkany is a professor of molecular neuroscience in the Center for Brain Research at the Medical University of Vienna. You can find a link to the Insight article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the last in our series of books at the intersection of race and science. This month, host Angela Saini talks with physician and science fiction author Todd A. Thompson. I'm Angela Saini, science journalist and host of this podcast. In the previous five installments, we've explored how scientists have thought about race in the past and the present, with scholars including Alondra Nelson and Lundy Braun. Today is different. I'm joined by Tade Thompson, an acclaimed science fiction writer whose 2018 novel Rosewater won the prestigious Arthur C. Clarke Award. Born in London to Yoruba parents and maintaining a day job as a doctor, Thompson's work explores not-so-distant futures in which humans are coexisting with alien lifeforms on different planes of consciousness. In his novel, Rosewater, Nigeria is a centre of focus, a site of alien engagement. India is now the world's leading robotics manufacturer. China and Russia are the two major global powers. The political order has changed. We have a radically new scientific understanding of humanity, but the legacies of race linger. Tade, it's so great to be able to catch you before you start your hospital shift today. First of all, can you paint a picture of the society that you imagined in your novel, Rosewater? All right, thank you. So the idea is about how the world would react if the U.S. withdrew from the stage and what that would mean in, you know, in geopolitical terms, in terms of the individuals and individual countries particularly about the relationship between the West and African countries, especially if the aliens land in African countries. Now, I'll talk about the aliens in a minute, but the idea of the aliens is more like they are a resource, just like oil was. So your oil was discovered in Nigeria pretty early on in the nationhood, and it could have, given the quality and quantity of the oil, could have changed Nigeria's, it should and could have changed Nigeria's relationship with the world. But it didn't, not as much as it should. And basically, the resources from it were siphoned off and it didn't, really, it didn't really help much. So the idea is that the aliens themselves are seen as a resource. And if they're seen as a resource, but they landed in Nigeria, we kind of control the access to the aliens from that perspective. And if that's the case, what does that do to the prestige and the power of African nations worldwide? Who moves into the positions that America occupied before? Where is the seat of manufacturing? Where is the seat of moral fortitude? Who acts as the person or the, the, and by person, I mean nation or the people who say, okay, we are the model, you know, we're the shining city that you should look to for, for your moral example. The idea of the aliens, you know, they're not pointy eared, bumpy forehead type aliens that you find in Star Trek. For example, 
there's a mass of fungal-like creatures, microscopic creatures that are everywhere in the world. And then there is a gigantic creature called Wormwood, who essentially lives underground. But a creature of that size also has other creatures that came with it, inside it. And I didn't want the creatures to be like human or anthropomorphic. The, the idea is that there are microbes, there are insects, there are plants, basically all kinds of organisms you can imagine. But there are also organisms in the human consciousness. The idea is that the aliens exist on every level of reality that we have. The main thing that makes them a resource is that the presence of Wormwood heals the sick, provides an energy source, and basically improves even the soil. It makes the soil grow better. It makes, it makes life better. Um, but of course, it's a trade-off because underneath all of that, the aliens are slowly taking over our bodies and our minds. So it's a very, very slow and sly alien invasion. In much of this series, we've been looking at the idea of race as scientists have thought about it. And that's obviously so heavily shaped by the past because these are historical, political quantities that we're talking about. What I find fascinating is when we imagine race in the future, especially now that in your novels, for instance, we are now communicating and engaging with alien species, how does that idea of race change? So how, in your mind, did you imagine race in that not so distant future? Took it from a starting point of like race doesn't actually exist biologically, it exists sociologically. In order to highlight that, I had to bring something truly alien into the mix. Like, okay, you need to understand that. One of the things I, for example, I did is that the aliens themselves don't actually see the differences in human beings. Humans are humans. What's the big deal? We don't understand this race business or this, all of that stuff. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that, you know, they came in and they are truly alien to us. And that part of it, the idea of it is that, especially when they control our minds, they slowly take over our bodies and therefore, and later the intention is to control our minds. It's the idea of race as a construct of the mind, as a social construct of the mind. And the idea that it can, just like the aliens take over us, it can take over us and change our perception of our identity, our ideas of who we are. And it does, you know, the idea of race is everywhere and it is every discussion. And what is different is what we do with those differences. What is different is how we try to use those differences. And of course, once the economic thing comes into it, the idea of slavery, for example, the economic motive comes into it and therefore it enhances all of those differences that did exist and turn them into something completely different. That dynamic definitely plays out in Rosewater in the different ways that various nations respond to this alien invasion, if you want to call it that, or colonization. Nigeria responds very differently from the United States, for instance. How deliberate was that and why did it play out in that particular way? Well, it's highly deliberate. Now, my perspective is this. If anybody is to deal with aliens, it should be previously colonized nations because we've dealt with it. An alien invasion is people who are not like you, who have superior technology coming into your country or space without permission and possibly taking over. That's what an alien invasion is in, in science fiction. But that's what colonization is. The colonies who come to the countries that are colonized, they're usually different, sometimes different, visually different from the places they're going to. They are technologically more advanced, very often more aggressive. Because one of the things they, for example, took advantage of in colonization is the 
the welcoming nature of some of the places that they took over. Like, okay, here are strangers. Most places have culture around how to treat strangers. You know, you welcome them. You don't get into conflict with them. You make sure they're fed. If they're sick, you treat them and all of that. These things were noticed and then taken advantage of. Colonization in many cases started off with adventurers and missionaries. And they were like outriders who mapped out everything and mapped out the cultures and said, okay, these are the places, these are the things we can take advantage of if we're going to move in here. That is part of, again, what I was showing, like Xenosphere, which is the kind of mental network formed by the fungal aliens, was gathering information. It was just passively gathering information where the human culture was understood from that. So they didn't have to turn up in a big spaceship and say, take me to your leader. They didn't have to do any of that. They had all the information they needed and they just realized, okay, we will slowly take over all of this. And of course, they have their collaborators because that's what happens when you're colonized. You get collaborators who help it happen. They're always collaborators. And there are always people who are resisting. And this is just really how it goes. And part of the whole thing was a metaphor for neocolonization. In other words, where our minds, and by our, I mean the minds of previously colonized countries are now still colonized where things from the West are valued over things that originate from the country itself. The internet has facilitated that. It's pretty much everywhere. Apart from some some really isolated communities, you can't go anywhere and say, okay, there's no Coca-Cola or there's no, there's no access to America or some kind of thing that America has as a cultural edifice. That's really what I was trying to do. Your medical and scientific training are are so apparent right the way through your work um, in the way that you talk about biology and human anatomy. How has your experience as a doctor and as a science fiction writer then shaped the way you think about human difference? So when you go to medical school, you have this laser focus on I need to learn this stuff and learn this stuff and learn this stuff. Half the time it's fear that, okay, I'm afraid to fail exams, I've got to do well. And you're not actually philosophically examining what you're doing, you are trying very hard to keep up with everybody else and not kill people. I would actually argue that the true learning occurs after you leave medical school, when you actually start practicing, because then you can synthesize the learning that you have. Because I also I did a master's in social anthropology. That is actually where I learned more about human cultural differences, you know, where I examined my own prejudices and I examined the origins of prejudices and all of that, and even my own relationship with anthropology, because as an African, I have no reason to love anthropologists. They really facilitated a lot of colonization and slave trade by creating theories that made it morally acceptable to enslave people or morally acceptable to colonize different civilizations because they were seen as inferior and as brutish. Sometimes they made the whole thing up. I had to re-examine my relationship to anthropology in that way. But all of it kind of came together because, again, you know, I'm a single human being. I'm a unified person, which means that everything, my childhood, my psychological makeup, my training in various fields, all of that will come together and will be part of me telling a story. You know, it certainly helped understanding human biology, definitely. An interest in body horror, that also helped as well. But I think it's the idea that I have the freedom to tell whatever story I want to, so I can throw in everything that helps me to make the point that I want to make. And that was what I was doing. Rosewater came out in 2018, but in your most recent book, which has just come out, uh, Far From the Light of Heaven, you write about Afrofuturists who have gone into outer space and developed a colony of their own. 
Can you describe this to us? And, and for the benefit of listeners, can you explain what Afrofuturism is? Okay, it would take ages to, this, to describe, but let me just put it this way. So the ideas that kind of coalesced to become Afrofuturism had been going on for quite a long time. The name itself comes from an essay by a person called Mark Derry called Black to the Future. That essay pulls together a number of ideas, things that were happening already within the Black community in America. Afrofuturism is primarily an American thing, at least in terms of its origin. Afrofuturism has spread beyond America in some ways, but there is no real agreement as to whether the term itself should be allowed to spread beyond what happens with American, your diaspora, Black people. But the ideas are apparent in every place that has a Black community thinking in terms of futuristic art, music, literature, every kind of creative endeavor, but also scientific and, and historical in the ways we think about history. Broadly speaking, Afrofuturism redefines the relationship of people of African descent with the history, the present, and the future. It recontextualizes the knowledge and the knowledges, let's put it that way, that exists around Black people. Part of the way of doing that, you know, sometimes conflicting, sometimes disparate ways of imagining the future of Black people. If you think of Afrofuturism, you have to think of a musician called Sun Ra, a very flamboyant musician and all that. You have to think about George Clinton. He literally had this rig where he would arrive on stage in a spaceship. So there was a very large bunch of people who thought of the idea of, of space. The statement is space is the place. In other words, space is the place for the human race. But the idea is that Black people could leave the oppressive places they were in and actually go and form a community in space. It was one of the one of the things that was said. And some of that comes from the idea of the Back to Africa movement, where people from America was, you know, where some people had a really well-intentioned but poorly executed idea of returning Black people who had been in America for generations to Africa without thinking of the wider aspects of things, without thinking, okay, immunity comes into this, where are they going to settle? Many of them have been systematically detached from their languages of origin. I don't even know where they're from. And this was before DNA was a thing. Even with DNA being a thing, it's not always accurate. The idea of moving from this place where you were oppressed into another place is the primary thing that I was trying to demonstrate by having an entire space station that was Afrofuturistic in origin. You know, because even if you look at um, astronauts and if you space travel, there are like astronauts and everything, but it's not like you've got large swathes of people of color going into space. So in my mind, in the, in the history and the world of this book, people of means, Black people of means decided, okay, fine, you know what? We're going to have our own space station, okay? We're going to build our own space station and we're going to go there. And that's how that particular space station originated. Tade Thompson, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you at home. That was the last episode in this series. I'm so very grateful to you for listening and to Professor Keith Lu for providing our book suggestions. I really do hope we've inspired you to read some of the books we've discussed and perhaps also branch out into the wider world of literature on race and what it means to science. There is so much more out there. I'm Angela Saini. Goodbye. And that concludes the last edition of the Science Podcast for 2021. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. And you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. 
The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Ben Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Special thanks to Angela Saney. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.